would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Today's scripture reading will come from Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the return heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asheridun, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehoadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The word of the Lord. It's good to be back. Good morning. If you are a uh, guest with us, we're glad to have you. You're catching us in our second week of our new sermon series in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I understand that... Um, Kind of each week, the passages kind of seem to skip around a little bit. It's two books that are really hard to get um, kind of the narrative structure and here, understand the story unless we kind of pull from some different pieces so we can not have to read for 20 minutes long uh, to kind of get the whole story. So we've skipped around a little bit. But Ezra and Nehemiah are uh, 
very unique books in our scriptures because they come at a very unique time in the life of Israel. They tell the story of Israel after they'd spent 70 or about 50 years in exile in Babylon. Before then, Israel was spending, had gone for 500 years of completely rebelling against God, seeking other, the gods of other nations, trying to be like other nations and turning away. And God finally brought down judgment and said, I'm going to have the uh, King Nebuchadnezzar come and destroy the temple and destroy the city. So in that, uh, in that promise of God's judgment, he also gives a prophecy through Jeremiah of hope. He says, after 70 years, he's going to bring some of them home. He wasn't going to bring all of them home, but he's going to bring some of them home to rebuild, to rebuild the temple. And Ezra begins his book by saying, these are the events that actually fulfill God's promise that he gave through Jeremiah. This is the beginning of that new work that God promised when he invites his people back. But last week, like we said, this promise of of fulfillment that we see is also coupled with this invitation that goes out to the exiles to return, to work, to rebuild, and to act. So you have this tension of invitation and fulfillment. It reminds us that, the, like we said last week, the foundation of, I think, this sermon series is that God's promises are not without a call to respond. They're never without a call to respond and change your life. And so as God's people return to rebuild, they have this incredibly massive uh, job ahead of them of rebuilding the temple. But they're faced with an even bigger challenge of relearning what it means to be God's people after spending decades in exile. Decades away from the temple, decades away from worshiping together. And so for them to understand this new work, Israel was going to have to, to begin to reimagine what it meant to be the people of God. And their concepts and expectations for what he wanted to accomplish in them needed to be reshaped. And today's passage is a hard lesson for Israel to learn, because one of the first lessons they learn in Ezra 4 is that this new work that God is doing won't be accomplished through strength. It will be accomplished through weakness. This new work that he's doing won't be accomplished through strength. It will actually be accomplished through weakness. And we do not live in a world where weakness seems to accomplish anything. It seems to be the complete opposite. In fact, admitting weakness and being honest about it isn't a strategy for success. So today when you go home, I want you to, uh, I want you to type in the word weakness in Google. And the first thing that's going to come up is the definition of the word weakness, but then the whole rest of the page is actually filled out how to go into a job interview and answer that dreaded question, what's your greatest weakness? So you get answers like, um, which is is funny because people have a, a crazy way of thinking about weakness and not admitting it and kind of pretending they're weak, but it's really a strength. And so it's things like, um, uh, you know, my biggest weakness, I guess I'd say I'm just a workaholic. I guess I just, uh, it's so hard for me to stop working, you know? Or uh, I'd say my, my greatest weakness is a perfectionist. I really just like getting things right, you know, all the time. Or I think, I, I think my weakness is I probably just go above and beyond too much to help others. I'm just too willing to help. You see, we live in a world where it doesn't, um, it doesn't get ahead. You don't get ahead by admitting weakness. You don't go to parties and say, you know, it's really tough for me to be here. I get really anxious around people I don't know. As soon as you say things like that, well you'll be talking to somebody new because they're going to leave and say, hey, good to meet you, and walk on. We don't live in a world where success or where you succeed, where to succeed, you have to minimize any notion of weakness. And you have to kind of ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist and hide it. 
But in God's kingdom, weakness is the only way to accomplish anything. In his kingdom, it's the only way that you can accomplish anything. And in Ezra 4, we, we uh, get caught up with our returned exiles after they've come back. They've begun the, re, re, they've begun the rebuilding projects and laid the foundations of the temple in chapter 3. And now they're continuing to build its walls in chapter 4. At this point, hopes are running high. They're excited to return. They're at this um, a kind of a groundbreaking moment, literally, for reestablishing God's people. And they've returned to their homeland, and they have their freedom to rebuild, and everything's going perfectly. But in chapter 4, verse 1, it said there's adversaries in the land. And God's people, um, well, who are these adversaries? Because they didn't, God, when God's people returned, they didn't come home to this empty land that, you know, there's nobody there. It just kind of seems to be these people that are, that are already there, and they come to offer the returned exiles. Who are they? Well, the truth is, uh, there's a lot of history. These people aren't random. And to be brief, whenever, after Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms. Benjamin and Judah make up the southern kingdom, and all other ten tribes make up the northern kingdom. But the northern kingdom would not return to worship at Jerusalem when they worshipped elsewhere and they worshipped other gods. And the king of Assyria through judgment, that God brings judgment down upon them. The king of Assyria comes and takes away the entire, all the northern kingdom and takes them into exile in Assyria. But back then what they would do is they would actually take conquered peoples and they would displace them and relocate them. So if we were conquered, we'd be replaced in Zimbabwe or something. The reason why is people that don't have anything to fight for are hopeless people. There won't be a rebellion and so that is who uh, comes to make this offer. It's a long-standing history with these people because we see it in John 3 with the woman at the well. These are the Samaritans. These are the people that worship other gods. These are the people that um, when they came from wherever they got displaced from, they brought their idols and they brought their, their gods with them. And these adversaries come up to Zerubbabel and they say, Hey, let us join you in the work of rebuilding this temple. We've been offering sacrifices to your god all this time. And Zerubbabel says, no. You actually have no business building this, this temple whatsoever. We alone have the right to build it, and we'll build it alone without you. So they didn't really particularly like that answer. But Zerubbabel knows that God's house isn't going to be built. It's only going to be built by those who are completely and strictly devoted to him. It's the greatest commandment to have no other gods before me. And so how inappropriate would it be to have those who have other gods before God to come and build his dwelling place? And so it's a moment where they make a stance for what God wants. It's a moment of making a vow of their commitment. But the thing is, is their devotion is immediately put to the test because the people of the land don't like their answer. They don't like their answer and they get frustrated. They get mad because they want to participate. They want to help. And they get angry, and they begin to bribe all the officials of the Persian Empire. And they begin to frustrate their purposes. And they begin to frustrate Israel so much that they completely refrain from doing the work altogether. They stop building the temple, and they're frustrated, and they don't continue in the work that they've started. And the truth is, if you just kind of step back, isn't that just about the way that it goes? You know, you set your mind to follow God's purposes in your life. You make a stand, and then immediately life happens. On Sunday, you kind of recommit to putting Jesus at the center of your life and to get focused on your walk with him. But on Tuesday, you have a project that came out of nowhere. 
kind of submarines, that whole thing. You have a bad argument with your spouse or just a rough day with your kids, and all that's gone in a matter of in, in no time at all. And kind of whatever glimmer of hope was there just gets snuffed out so quickly. And you kind of find yourself back in the same rhythms of life trying to cope. And it feels like circumstances are always working against you and you feel powerless. And I think the significance of the temple in Israel's day was that it actually represented God's presence in their life. The temple was the representative of the fact that God was dwelling in the midst of his people. That no matter how bad it got, we can still look at the temple and say, hey, God is still with us because the temple is still standing. And just as they begin to answer God's call to rebuild the temple and begin to seek God's presence at the center of their lives, life happens. Adversaries in the land begin to work against them. Circumstances aren't what they want them to be. And they become frustrated. And we don't really know what the nature of the Israelites being frustrated by the adversaries were. doesn't really say. Maybe they had death threats. Maybe their kids couldn't get in the best schools. Maybe nobody would do business with them. Whatever it was, they were frustrated to the point where they stopped. And instead of building God's temple, they stopped. And, they, um, and when they stopped, the temple would lie in ruins for the next 19 years. For 20 years after this, it would just sit there in ruins, and they stopped. And at the end of these two decades, the prophet Haggai shows up. He walks out among all the rubble of the temple, the unfinished work, and he brings a message from God that begins with a powerful question. In Haggai 1, Verse 4, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? There's a deep significance buried in this question because when God asks them why they're living in paneled houses, the word paneled um, isn't talking about like shiplap or something like that. You know, it's not a designed feature. It's actually a, it's actually a descriptor of luxury. It's a descriptor of, of strength, a well-built house. But the thing is, is that paneled is almost, all, is almost exclusively used in Scripture to describe the temple of God. That throughout the Old Testament, God had a paneled house. It's God house, God's house who is paneled. I want to build you a house that is paneled. And so God comes to them and he says, Why are you concerned in living in your own temples rather than concerned about building mine? Why have you constructed temples for yourself instead of seeking my presence among you. And what we need to recognize is this, that just like the Israelites, when we face difficulty or hardships or opposition in whatever it is, we run and look for safety in the form of comfort. We run and look for safety in the form of comfort. And we seek refuge, we seek refuge in the sanctuaries of our choosing to escape the fact that we feel weak and vulnerable, afraid, incompetent, and, and like verse 2 says in Haggai, and we even validate it. We'll even validate those ways of dealing with those moments of weakness by coming up with a story to kind of justify it. Because verse 2 tells us that by this time, Israel was actually going around at the end of these 20 years kind of saying, oh, actually, you know, it's, it's actually not, now's not the time to rebuild. Now's not the time. It'll be, uh, it'll be a time, some, probably somewhere down the road, someone else will finish this work. Obviously, we're being... We're having opposition, and so the time is not now. So they convinced themselves of this new story that they weren't responsible for what God, for this temple that God had called them to rebuild, and they felt the freedom to go and pursue their own agenda. And the idea of validation is, a, is, is incredibly insightful because I think we do th- the same thing all the time. 
Oh, yeah, I work long hours to provide for my kids and my family, to provide them a quality of life that I want them to have. But perhaps at the, at the heart of that is actually that you're deathly afraid of your boss's disapproval. Or you say that I, you know, I, I serve in every ministry possible, but the reality is, is that you're trying to deal with the guilt that you feel before God. And we come and we validate these new stories that we create rather than actually pursuing God's presence. And through Haggai, God is asking them a very tough question to kind of push away the, or to try to push into the fact that they began to create this story that it wasn't time to really pursue God's presence. Like, that'll, be, that'll be further down the road, and it's easier to seek comfort. God begins to ask them questions. He says, I bring you safely out of exile. I turn the heart of the Persian emperor to decree that the temple will be rebuilt and that he will pay for it. And I bring you all the way safely home, and you don't think it's time to rebuild the temple. You don't think it's time because it got a little bit difficult. I think we make the same mistake. I think we trade Jesus' presence in our lives for momentary comforts. And we validate it because, yeah, it is hard to follow Jesus. And we choose to go the other way, and we come up with stories like it's, life's busy right now, or I'll get serious about it when life slows down a little bit, or this project's over. But the essence of Haggai's message still rings true to us today. That the time for seeking God's presence is now. That Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death and all power and all authority have been given to him. And he's bringing his kingdom right now into a world that's fading and you don't think it's time to put him at the center of your life. That it's not time to make him at the center of everything. And here in Haggai 1, verse 5, God begins to love his people by kind of poking holes in these stories that they've adopted for themselves. He begins to poke holes in the ways that they convince themselves of uh, pursuing these many temples that they've created. And he comes in verse 5 and 6, and he says, In the midst of all their efforts, in the midst of all their efforts to comfort themselves, they've effectively been left empty. Because he says, You've worked so hard, yet you get so little. You work so hard, yet the harvest is small. You eat, but you're always hungry. You drink, but you can't get enough. You worked hard for your money, but all you do is put it in a bag filled with holes. And he says at the end, he says, to consider your ways. He says, so in other words, God's asking them, has what you've done really worked? How's the way that you escape me and build your own temple and seek your own comfort actually worked? Has neglecting my promises in your life worked out? Has not seeking my presence in your life above all else worked for you? And if so, then why are you so remarkably unsatisfied? He's asking them to consider their ways and understand that in all of their toil, it still leaves them remarkably unsatisfied. And one thing to note here isn't that you know, Israel is living like in complete, just abject poverty. You know, they're living in paneled houses. They're living in nice homes because that's kind of been their focus. There's no famine. There's no drought. There's nothing. There's no tragedy going on. They're actually living in relative comfort. But as one commentator says, and he puts it perfectly, he says, Israel had all the goods, but the good life evaded them. They had all the goods, but the good life evaded them. So out of his kindness, God asks the difficult questions. How has all of that worked out? How has all of that worked out for you? 
You know, as avoiding relationships actually made you feel more loved and safer. Has not tithing because you're so afraid of financial calamity all the time actually made you feel more secure? You know, as legalism and self-righteousness actually made you feel at peace and know you're worth something and that you're valuable? Does a bigger house actually feel more like a home than the smaller one you moved out of? When your children win all the awards possible, do you still feel like a bad parent? The truth is, we can have all of the goods, and God asks us these questions because he doesn't just want us to have all the goods. He wants us to have the good life. He wants us to flourish. And the only way that you can, that can happen is when you seek his presence in all things, in every area of your life. But it comes at a cost to do that because in Ezra 5, the people respond. They recommit themselves to the rebuilding efforts. But the significance of their recommitment is that the adversaries still don't want them to rebuild it. There's still adversaries in the land. They're outnumbered, unwanted. And so a part of their recommitment meant that they had to enter into a position of weakness where they felt completely helpless and there's nothing they could do other than just do what God told them and trust that he would protect them. To be faithful to God's command, God asks, he says, I want you to come to a place that makes you feel really vulnerable and I just want you to trust me. And continue on. Continue rebuilding. Keep building. Seek me at the center of your life. And in Ezra 6, which we don't get to today, but it closes out these first six chapters of the story. Because amidst all of Israel's fears and anxiety about being small and weak in the land, the temple actually ends up getting rebuilt. The hearts of kings continue to turn by God to favor them and their enemies are pushed away and we're actually given an exact date that it's finished almost 70 years to the day from when they first went into exile the temple was completed because God is faithful to his promises so we have to wrestle with the fact that God brings us to places of weakness he calls us out of those places we feel comfortable because we're pushing him away we're keeping him from being at the center of our lives And he calls us to places of weakness because it's the places where we've probably actually begun to trust in all the other things. We've taken security in other things. But if we're really honest about it, our life isn't any better. Still the same. We've just adopted a lifestyle of coping and not flourishing. And God wants us to be free from the illusion that the little sanctuaries that we, we create, little sanctuaries of refuge for ourselves, wants to free us from the fact that they ever actually satisfy us. He wants us to understand that it's like filling a bottomless cup and putting money in a bag with holes. It's living the good, it's having all the goods, but not the good life. That's the hard thing about the God that we serve. But the good news is that He brings us to places of weakness so that we can actually be awakened by His love. I uh, broke my shoulder a few years ago. Um, I wish there was a cooler story why. But uh, I was playing ultimate frisbee, and uh, I I slipped on some wet grass, and um, I was wearing tennis shoes, and I just slipped and I landed on my shoulder and just I broke my collarbone. I didn't really know what happened, and I passed out on the way to the hospital. Melissa, Melissa, my friend, drove us there. Um, Jonathan Bish, some of you remember him. He was here for some time. Drove me to the hospital, and uh, Melissa met us there, 
and uh, I passed out again in the ER because it was, it, was it was unbelievably painful. And I knew I had done something because by the time we got to the hospital, it was excruciating. And so we ended up getting x-rays, and we're like, yep, you definitely broke your, we, we, we at least know you broke your collarbone right here, just snapped it completely in half. And uh, so I had, we ended up going to an um, orthopedic surgeon that specialized in shoulders. And uh, he, said, he said, wow, man, he said, you have a million-dollar injury. You know, like Forrest Gump, I'm like, I'm still waiting to see some of that money, you know. But the, uh, he said, you actually broke your collarbone and separated your shoulder at the same time. He said, and you tore out all the ligaments. He's like, I've only ever seen one other of these. You know, it's like he's giddy about it, you know, like he's going like to go show his friends or something. Look, honey, check this out. And so he, uh, he tells me, he said, you're going to need surgery. And he said, it, he said, the only other way you could have injured your shoulder anymore is for you to just go ahead and cut off your arm. And I was like, oh, okay, it's some bedside manner. But he, uh, he said, yeah, it's going to take surgery, and that's the only way you can fix it. And the only way you can actually um, ever have use of your arm again is, to, is we're going to have to go in there and do a lot of work. And so um, afterwards... Uh, I remember leaving the hospital, and I was extremely drugged up. I had three different drugs from the anesthesia, from a drip, and from oxycodone. And I just remember her saying, um, she said, you need to go home and you need to get under, you need to get under some medicine. We're going to give you a really high dose of oxycodone. Take those immediately. So go fill the prescription, get them, and uh, stay on top of it. Because for the next few weeks, you're going you're gonna to be really weak. And it's going to be really painful. It's going to be really hard. And so I'm feeling pretty good at that time. So I'm like, yeah, sure, it's no big deal. Yeah, great, we'll get, we'll get it. And uh, so I wake, I go home, and uh, Melissa went to go fill the prescription. She shows up three hours later, two hours after they told her was the deadline for me to get the drugs, because there was three different pharmacies she went to, and they were all out of the drugs. Three different ones, of course. And from that moment on, um, she, I remember why she said to stay on top of the pain. Because it was unbelievable. It was just excruciating. Excruciating with no meds. It all worn off. And I remember the next few days, it took, it took days to get back on top of the pain again. And it brought me to such a weakened place where I literally, not to be indelicate here, um, but uh, she had to help me with everything. I was in a, it looked like I had half of a stormtrooper outfit on because I had the sling. And I had to wear that six, uh, for, for uh, six weeks, 24 hours a day. I couldn't get, in, couldn't get in and out of bed without her help. I had to learn to eat with my left hand. I had to learn to um, let her pick out my clothes and get me ready for the day. I was literally quite helpless for some time. She would rub my feet whenever she would, before she would go to work, after she laid me on the couch to stay there for the day until she got home. She would get up four and five times a night to continue to give me my meds, and she never complained once. Now, the thing is, we made vows to each other to love each other no matter what, no matter how hard it got. That's the wedding day. Of course you do. We make vows and we commit ourselves to loving this person, but then all of a sudden life happens and it gets really difficult. Life happens and frustrations come and and marriages begin to struggle. But in that moment, I realized how, in my weakest moment, I realized how much Melissa loved me. In my weakest moment, I realized how above and beyond she went to care for me. And what I thought I knew, I didn't really come to know until I was at my weakest point. Until I was helpless and just had to depend upon her. That's what it took to understand how much she loved me. 
And I think it's the same for us. God invites us into the weak places, not because he just feels good about being in control, but because that's where we actually experience his love, perhaps for the first time. That's when it becomes the most real to us. And God asks us to consider our ways, do your coping mechanisms for working, are they working in your life? Are they changing you? Are they making you into a new type of person? Do they make you reimagine what life could look like, or do they just help you cope and numb the day and veg out and coast? I think Jesus allows our structures of comfort and security to fail so that our weakness and frailty become more real to us and we depend upon him and we can actually experience his love because that is actually what will change you and it's the only thing that will change you. It's not self-help, it's understanding your Savior's radical love for you. Because we can look at all the ways we deal with weakness and say, I'm still empty at the end of it, I'm putting money in bags with holes. But Jesus says, no, come in and step into weakness and learn to depend upon me in all things because that's not when you put things in to where it falls apart and be empty. That's where you'll actually be filled. That's where you'll be filled with faith that begins to understand that where it grows far deeper in your heart than you could imagine. You begin to hope for the future. And all of that is important because when you begin to understand that you aren't broken and bent down by every bad word that a friend says or a family member When the finances aren't working or going the way you want, you're not destroyed by it. You're not crushed by every single possible thing that could happen and crushed by anxiety. It's in those moments where God invites us into weak places so that he can truly be our rock and that we can learn to say, just like Paul, that for Christ's sake, I've actually learned to rejoice in my weakness and calamities and in insults and in sufferings and in persecutions. Because I've found and learned that when I am weak, he is strong. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we come before you knowing that we often run from weakness. We run from the opportunities to seek you in our lives. Because it's hard. It's hard, and we live in a world that offers so many wonderful, amazing temples to come and worship in and ignore you. But I pray that we would be reminded that all those things will fail, and all those things will fade, and that the only thing that will truly last beyond this world is that which is given in dependence and worship of you. Remind us that you came as a baby and you cried for your mother to feed you, You depended upon your father in the wilderness to feed you instead of feeding yourself. On the cross, you said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit as death loomed over you. In all things, you were weak and depended upon God. And we see him vindicate you by raising you from the dead. And we know that when we put our trust in you, you would do the same of us. Help us to not run from weakness, but to accept it and to embrace it, and to trust that that's exactly where you want to meet us and make us new. We ask all these things for your glory and our sake. Amen.